and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals! It's December, which means many things. First off uh, is that it's legit to eat mince pies every day for the rest of the month. Second is that the podcast is almost a year old. And to celebrate both of those occasions, I've got a wonderful guest in store today. I've wanted to have Kate on the podcast since I came up with the idea, having long admired her career from afar and twice pestered her about whether Curzon had any job opportunities, so this feels like a bit of a coup. Kate is acquisitions manager at Curzon Artificial Eye, the UK distributor behind many an award-winning movie, and yes, I'm going to name drop. Some of my favourite releases of theirs have included The Handmaiden, Victoria, Love and Friendship, Only You, A Fantastic Woman, 120 Beats Per Minute, The Great Beauty, and Jeune Femme, to name but a few. We talked about the start of Kate's career working for BBC Films and Casa Roto, as well as her acquisitions highlights, how she deals with not making deals, and what returning to work since maternity leave has been like. And it would be remiss of me not to mention a Curzon release coming to cinemas soon, which is undoubtedly one of my favourites of 2019. I was lucky enough to see it at TIFF. And that's Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's every bit as sensuous and wise and vivid as you'd expect, and I can't recommend it enough. And Curzon are releasing that into cinemas and on demand from the 28th of February. Quick PSA, uh, my questions have been re-recorded to fix some sound issues, Um, so if it sounds like Kate and I are actually in a different room, that would be why. But for now, please join me in fangirling Kate in episode 37 of Best Girl Grip. My first job in film was working as an office manager for content film sales, which is now Q Media. And I had been living in New Zealand and moved back and was starting from fresh and thought, well, I love film. I can do this job. And I was really lucky that the people there, because I was like, give me stuff to do on top of normal office management. They gave me more and more to do. Tracking box office for films that had been sold, covering like materials, all that stuff. I did the Christmas bookings. They had It's a Wonderful Life. So I would always do the Christmas bookings and dealing with them with ICA and things like that. So that was always fun. And I did that um, for, it was a few years, three years, I think, two years. And then uh, got a job at BBC Films as a PA to Jane Wright, who was the managing director, who um, is sort of transferring the fact that I understood how a film sales company worked, but also had a love for film and could do the admin side. So it was a nice little mix. And really, Jane is the reason that I... I work in film. She was amazing. She was completely open with me. She brought me into everything. She CC'd me on all my, on her emails, brought me on set, asked for my opinion on things. I, I couldn't have asked for a better start to, you know, really get into the industry with someone who was just very generous with her time and her knowledge. From there, I went to Casarotto, worked for Jenny, and uh, Jenny Casarotto is the main agent, and then Jodie Shields for some of her clients. And that was amazing. That was like... Steve McQueen and Tony Grizzoni and writing and directing but directing is always the thing that I've been interested in so it was a good way to read scripts and see how directors come on board and you know that sort of side of it but really my dream was always acquisitions and it's something that I had always been interested in but everybody always said look it's a really difficult thing to get into and people tend to stay where they are so you just have to wait and then one day my friend who works here at Curzon sent me an email and said, we're hiring, are you interested? 
and I yeah, jumped out of my skin and ran over and sort of did my interview. And I think from there, that was eight years ago as acquisitions coordinator. And from there, it's just like, I love it. I'm really interested in it. And so just, yeah, I'm, I think in every job, it's always been like, I want to learn more. I want to do more. I want to not just sort of tread water and just always know how things are and obviously things are changing so much as well you've got to keep on top of it. How did you hear about acquisitions and why was it that role you were interested in? I suppose it's a bit of a a, an intriguing job because you don't really know what it is like I never understood how and when I was at the sales company I didn't really understand how it worked in terms of these guys have got this and, and even the more complicated things like, you know, when it goes through sub-distribution from studios and things, I didn't really understand that so, and I didn't understand who did that. So I do feel it's quite an opaque job. So it's just sort of talking to people and asking questions and I, I guess aligning yourself with people who have similar tastes to you and just sort of figuring out how it works. You get to negotiate and you get to watch a load of films. So it is the dream job. It's not quite the job that people think it is. I'm not just... I think everybody thinks I sit in the cinema all day watching amazing films and then just deciding which one to do. And obviously it's not that. I'm interested to know, um, when you had your interview at Curzon, given that it's quite a hard job to get experience in because not many people leave that role, how did you sell yourself as being the right person or having the transferable skills to to excel in this job? Uh, Well, I was really lucky in that the skills that I had from the different jobs, because every job is slightly different. So sales, uh, broadcaster and uh, an agency meant that I understood contracts from the agency. Uh, I had a love for film, which goes through all of them. I understood different territories, box office, and I understood the British film industry, but also the international one, which is just a really lucky mishmash of all those jobs. And also, I was just very passionate about the films here. So when I had the interview, I remember just talking about why I loved a certain film and really getting into it. And I think at one point they were like, okay. Because I was just going on. And I think that's really something that's important, especially for this label, is you have to be passionate about the films because different distributors have different types of content. I hate that word, but, you know, it's the type of films that they do. And here we're director-led and and we love all the films that we do. So I think really it was a combination of having all those different attributes, but also really loving because you, you live and breathe it. And presumably having that mishmash of experience wasn't by design, but looking back in hindsight... It, it it served you quite well. Oh, it's really, really good. And when people say, well, you know, how can I get into it? I'm like, oh, it's just the luck of, of the draw. But it's just, you can learn wherever you are. It's it's just about being interested in what you do and, and just making sure. I was just very, very lucky. But I know other people who, you know, I didn't study film. I know other people who studied film and then went to NFTS and did things that way. So it's just, it just depends. It was luck and the right place at the right time. And that is always, because I, I know a lot of jobs don't really advertise. It's all about finding out which I don't like because I do think you should advertise otherwise it's just always going to be a game of who knows who and I would like more jobs to be advertised if I'm honest. So let's talk about the acquisitions process and what it is you actually do. Um, Where does it begin because I assume you're you're, um, tracking projects as soon as they're in development and then at what stage you know what what happens after that and how are you hearing about things and how are you going after things? It's very very much a cycle every year of when you know when how things are happening so in January we go to Paris for the rendezvous which is where the French sales companies tell you about the films that they're going to have coming up and it's always the same conversation they say we're going to announce this in Berlin we're going to have footage to show in Berlin it will be ready for Cannes 
So in January, we were already starting to look at, okay, what's going to be in Berlin and what are the main ones that we're going to buy in Cannes, which is our main market. And then in February, yeah, we go to Berlin, we'll buy films or we'll pre-buy films that we've seen the promo for. Then it's all about sort of catching up on stuff. And then we start on our Cannes prep, which for us, Cannes is the main market. It's where we buy the most amount of our films. It's where the most interesting films are for us. So from April to end of May, it's just heads down, full on Cannes. Then there's usually two weeks of watching screening links for small sidebar films that you missed. Then in the summer, the plan is to meet up with agents, Film 4, BBC Films, BFI, find out who's got what, what should we know about, who are the directors we should meet looking at short films, NFTS graduation, London Film School. The summer is quieter in terms of festivals, so it is about sort of gathering intel. And then you get to August, and then it's Venice, Toronto. After Toronto is all the links. Then AFM starts with all the scripts. We don't go to AFM because it's not really a market for us, but anything that is on there we will cover if we think it's interesting. And then... We're in November and then in oh, October is London Film Festival. So we're busy with the films that we've bought throughout the year. And then November is just catching up. December is Christmas and then it starts all over again. But there's always, except for the main festivals, except for February, May and August, September, we are always meeting with people and saying, what do you have? What, what should we be aware of? Pre-buying is becoming harder and harder to do now. So a lot of it is tracking along and seeing who has what but then sometimes you see something and you just think we have to get in on that early it's rare now why is that because the we found that the mgs when you buy something are not necessarily the same mg that you would pay once a film is made so unless it's a filmmaker that we have an established relationship with like a hanukkah you know Lars von Trier all these directors that we we know we're going to do their films those will pre-buy. Everything else is risky because you don't know what the market is for it unless you've seen the film. Someone like Lynn Ramsey is a good example of a filmmaker that you know when you read a Lynn Ramsey script what it's going to look like. Like you think you know. It's, it's easier to guess with Lynn. And she's someone that I think is just one of the most phenomenal filmmakers. And so if she came in with a script, not even a question. If someone who we didn't really necessarily know their voice well enough it's a wait and see usually, or until we can see something, see some footage. And then is it quite hectic once you've seen something, you know, like quite competitive? How often, how many players are there at the table? Yeah, it's sort of like what I must imagine it's like to be Channing Tatum's girlfriend, where you're just constantly batting people away when you want something. <laughs> like it's that, it, it really is. A lot of the times everybody's gunning for the same thing because it's so rare to get something that if there's a film where you know everyone's after it you see them going into the sales agent's office when you're at a market and you're like oh god someone else is after it it is it's very competitive but just because there are lots of films that are very well made very well told great in festivals hard to get people to go and to see in the cinema if you find something that's available not at a crazy price very marketable and you know it will work in the UK. You know that all your main competitors are also going to be going after it. And there's this unspoken thing between us all where I've seen my friends who are buyers for other companies going in somewhere and I'm just like, oh, them as well. So, I mean, you know, but yeah, it's just whoever gets to get off with chatting at the end. And was learning how to negotiate and make deals something you already had an aptitude for or were they skills that you picked up along the way? Uh, Negotiate, I mean, I like to 
not argue. I like to um, go back and forth with people on on stuff and and try and um, get a good deal. But it is something that you learn. And also, I work with Louisa Dent, who's very very good at negotiating. So I can. I think I've just picked up from her along the way. Uh, I have a different style to her, but then sometimes I'll say, okay, you, can you weigh in now? Yeah, it is just something that you pick up along the way. The main thing is about relationships and with sales agents and producers. Louisa and I tend to have strong relationships with different producers and then and sales agents and then some that we both have a good relationship with. So it just depends on the type of sales agent. And I think that the way that we negotiate suits the way we separate out who deals with who. So um, I have a couple of favorite sales agents that I know the sales agent really well. I know what they want for this film. And I think that we'll be able to work our way around it. And the same with her as well. So it depends. And then, yeah, if we really want to, Tony Erdman was Match Factory. We're both good friends with them. And we chased poor Tanya from Match Factory around the houses trying to get this film. And it was Cannes. There was a party that they were throwing at 3am. And we saw her on the stairs talking to someone. We went running up after her and stuff. And after that, I was like, she's not really someone that responds well to being chased. So uh, <laughs> just make a note of that for future. But yeah, it, it, I think half of it is negotiating on the price and half of it is negotiating, look, we're the best home for this and these are the reasons why and hopefully they understand that. Is it also sometimes about in-house negotiation? Like you mentioned that Curzon have quite a specific brand and you know that, that gives you an idea of what you might go for. But what about if you see a film that doesn't necessarily fit within the wheelhouse and then you end up having to you know fight for it and, and persuade team members to go for it? Yes, I think it's important to have a balance slate. So I don't want us to have too many films of a certain type, which can be very easily done. Like I pass on films where if we didn't have two films in a, for a similar audience, I would say, yeah, we'll do it. But also, so for example, Anomalisa, which is still one of my favourite acquisitions of all time. I loved this film and I saw it in Venice and every part of me was like, we have to do this film. It's extraordinary. But I don't know what audience it is. And that was a big debate that I had in my head where I was sort of going back and forth about... But I just thought we just have to have a gamble on it. And we don't really do animation. We did Waltz with Bashir. Um, it's stop motion animation, but it's the same sort of principle of, yeah, is this for us? It's odd, but it's brilliant. And then in, essentially we were like, it's Charlie Kaufman. It really speaks to, I think it speaks to our, we sort of split up our audience in terms of cinemas and it's more of a Soho Bloomsbury audience than a Richmond Mayfair, which I think gives a good example of how we divide up our films and yeah and I'm, I'm I'm really pleased that we bought it but it was people were surprised that we got it obviously Curzon is a distributor as well as an exhibitor so does it help to know that you have different audiences at different cinemas when you're when you're going in to buy different things yeah because essentially the plan is that the films that we buy for distribution are the same audience for Curzon Home Cinema and the same audience for our cinemas so the stuff that works on Curzon Home Cinema is our films or films that we would have considered so we are always buying with the thought of that audience occasionally we'll buy something that's a bit broader that we think will be multiplexes or yeah a slightly different audience to a Curzon audience but um essentially we are trying to cater for people who like quality cinema um and you just mentioned Anomalisa as being an acquisitions highlight but on the flip side what happens when you don't get something you go after um what is that process like for you for sort of 
moving on and, and trying not to take it personally. Yeah, it's like being dumped. But it's, it's happened, I mean, it's happened recently, a couple of months ago on a film that I just flipped for like every other person in distribution and I knew it was going to be a fight and it's really really hard when you fight for something for a really long time and then it just falls apart it goes to someone else I I take it personally but that's because like I said earlier it's about passion for the film and it's about really wanting to work with directors and look after a film it's like having a baby having a film where you're just like I just want to make sure it's taken care of and looked after and we would be so good for it and why is it you know why is it with them so it's hard to see uh, to see that go but then it's it's hard to see a film where you know you would do a better job on the release and then it's also hard when you see a film where you think ah oh, they've done a really good job on that it's that sort of yeah double-edged sword and then speaking of the film being your baby obviously you've got an in-house marketing team and then people that deal with the release and publicity at what point are you handing it over to them or are you still quite involved with that process it depends on the film to be honest there are some films that I do want to be kept up to date on and see what what the posters are looking like. If it's something that I've worked on from an early stage or if I have a relationship with a director, it is something that I want to know what's happening. I am sort of like the annoying little sister that's pulling on their sleeves and going like, can I just see this or what's the trailer looking like? Or, but that's just because you want to... I have faith in our team and I know that they're going to do a good job on it. It's more knowing for myself what's happening. But also you do have to let them do it. And our guys do an amazing job on marketing. Oh. Ed Frost, who does our... Um, He's done our posters for In Fabric, So Long My Son, and uh, Portrait for A Lady on Fire. And I am just like, it's just, just, yeah. It, he, he's knocked it out of the park with these. So with all of them, though, you know that they're going to do a good job. It's just sort of wanting to see what they've got and, and things. But it is hard to do it, especially because when you're trying to buy a film, you're essentially saying, look, we'll look after this, we'll do this. And there are some films, like I said, from an early stage. So if we've come on very early... And we've constantly been talking to the director and the producer and the sales agent about it. You do just want to continue that on because if you just step back and then move on to the next thing, it feels a bit disingenuous. So I always want to know what's happening so that I can have have a conversation with them about this is what we're doing and stuff. But they keep everybody informed. Because we're director-led, we're very keen to make sure that directors are part of the process. Even if it's if it's not marketing control, it's just about, look, this is what we've done. Do you like it? You know, things like that, just to keep everyone happy, really. Because if it is an independent film, it takes so many years of your life, and this is the last bit, you want to make sure that it's done to a way that you think. And sometimes we have to say to them, no, this, the way you want to do it is not going to attract an audience, and we think we should do this. And yeah, generally they, they understand. Does that sense of um, explanation or, yeah, ha- like having to inform a director why that's the best decision ever happen with day and date still or is that kind of just an accepted means of release now generally people know that with day and date we look at curzon home cinema as a virtual screen rather than a a netflix or an amazon or something it is just like another cinema which means if you don't live near an independent cinema you can still see these films so that's the way we explain it to people and it's you know we don't have piracy issues we Curzon members a lot of them use it so it's just yeah it's it's something that it's becoming easier to explain to people as people get it and obviously more streamers are coming in now so that makes life easier because it's like yeah everybody does it we're not mad Mm. we just did it first (laughs) 
You you mentioned about being director led, and I know uh, with with the release of Only You, and uh, which was written and directed by Harry Woodliff, you came on board that really early. You you developed that with her, and is that something you're doing even more of now? And is that becoming more of a necessity to your to your model? It's something that uh, we like doing. It's hard. It's actually harder and harder to do now. Harry was. A very rare example of when we did this because we saw her short films, met her, she pitched it, and it was an instant yes. Just like this is an audience that is underserved. This is a story that we think needs to be told, and she's a great filmmaker. So that was like, let's get in on this early. There are some distributors now who've got sales companies, so they're coming in earlier. So there is that pressure to know about projects early on. But the problem is that if a lot of the time British films need quite a lot of money because they've put you know they've put a certain amount for domestic release and it's just not plausible when you're when you're going on something early to know what the market's going to be in two years so you know we've done we've bought films on a pitch that three years down the line the market's changed and then we're like oh god we've overpaid for this film which is not the case for any of you but um it, it does make you a little bit more conscious of you know we're an independent and people have salaries and things like that that they're reliant on so you do have that pressure of we can't spend money that is being wasted i would like to come on board things earlier on but not all of them a lot of them is we'll wait and see but um, I'm really pleased that we did Only You because I don't think that film would have been funded without us. So. Mm. And I, I thought it was such a beautiful film. Thanks, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think she's brilliant. I really do. And I think um, part of our, we have our directors that are the established ones, but I do think we have a responsibility to make sure that new and upcoming directors are supported. Otherwise, they're all going to go off to Netflix or to the US or to TV. We're doing, uh, oh, this is a good example, we're doing Claire Oakley's film Makeup which we thought she she was an amazing director and we talked to the BBC about it and they said, look, we'll take it early. So they're taking it seven weeks after theatrical release. So we're able to give it release and BBC are able to put it on their service. Claire gets her film theatrically released and we get to support a filmmaker that we're really interested in and hopefully do her next one. But I, but I do think it's important to do things like that rather than just, you know, these films that don't get picked up. It's hard. Your first film is is a tough film to get distributed. So, um, but when you see a talented filmmaker, and for me especially, female talented filmmaker, I would like more filmmakers of color, and I would like more queer filmmakers. Um, but yeah, we're working on it. Um, and presumably, that's you know that knowledge of emerging talent is something you work quite hard to cultivate. But I'm also interested to know maybe how we work to get more voices, more. Um, yeah, an array of voices into the mainstream. Yes, um, we do do that and we work with the BFI as well, for example. But um, I still would like more to come my way because you have to present different voices. Otherwise, it's just one homogenous cinema voice, which I think is really boring. Um, but it's who, you know, if a sales company doesn't have a very diverse slate, it makes it more difficult to find them. So, yeah, it's just about finding ways around that. But um, it is something that I'm very conscious of. I don't just want to have a load of white men on our slate. And coming back to the BBC Films deal that you did with Makeup and Claire Oakley, do you, do you feel like it pays off for a distributor to be to be nimble and quite flexible to those kind of, yeah, those changing means of release? Yeah, and I think that's where Day and Date really does help us because of the fact that we don't need to hold on to these 16-week windows that we can say... 
we can go we can go shorter we can it's about being flexible on a case-by-case basis if you watch something and you love it and you think how can we find a way to make this work the chances are you'll be able to because in the case of makeup both the bbc and protagonist wanted us to do it because they knew that we would look after it and it's a statement for them as well um in order to sell it elsewhere so they were very keen to find a way around it as well so um yeah it's just being flexible rather than just being like no this has to go in like this and that's the only way around it and I'm wondering if the role has changed quite a lot since you first started eight years ago and if it's something that you love as much as you still did when you first started yeah uh sorry I do still love it as much as when I first started um but it is definitely different so for example the changing in culture means that films that we bought a few years ago would probably be difficult to buy now. Um, Blue is the warmest colour. We loved this film. Subsequently, think it would have been more difficult to release that film now. And I think we there are the argument about whether you separate filmmaker from their art. I think is much more important now. Not more important, sorry, is more focused now. So it means that someone like Roman Polanski, for example, is much more of a conversation in the industry, not just here, about whether his film should be released or not, than it would have been five years ago. So there's that. There's also the streamers obviously make a difference because people are less likely to go to the cinema unless something is an event. There's films that we released years ago that I think would struggle cinematically now just because cinema is expensive and you know if you're going to go out if you're going to get babysitter if you're going to spend this much money if you're going to make a thing of it it has to be worth it so we see a lot of miserable miserable films and why do people want to see miserable films well there has to be something more to it so son of saul is a great example of a film that jesus it's a tough film but it's so extraordinary cinematic that you yeah it's a thing you have to go and see it and there are films where i'm just like I'll wait. Roma, I waited weeks and weeks and weeks before I could go and see it in a cinema because I was just like, I don't want to see that on a small screen. And I get it. Some people do. For me, I was like, it's it's a big screen adventure. So yeah, it's just trying to find cinematic films that will speak to people. And also eight years ago, we weren't in quite the mess that we're in now. So comedy. (laughs) We, um, yeah, I, I just think there's films I see and I think this is really good, but it's unrelentingly grim. And I just don't know why people would want to go and see this in a cinema. It's just about what we can get to work. So when something does really work, it really does get us excited about, okay, this can work. I think it will be really interesting to see how Parasite does for us in February because this film is like gunning for the Oscars now. It's going for best picture, for best director. You know, it's not just a best foreign language film. If this does gangbusters, then it does say as a whole okay well UK audiences will embrace foreign language films that are over two hours long like there is an audience still for this kind of stuff and that's really what I want I want to see films do well when not so great films do really well and you're just like why is everybody going to see this film and it can be really miserable that it's just like but this film is so good and, and it hasn't worked and yeah I guess really it comes down to if audiences go and see something we'll be able to justify buying more films like that like I have to go into an acquisitions meeting and argue to get films where we've got a profit and loss sheet and we're talking about why we should buy it and why we shouldn't and if I can say well audiences really love Romanian cinema at the minute for example then you know that's you can't really argue against that if nobody's gone to see any Romanian films in the last five years then it's just like all people don't want to see this now 
And is that just about trusting your instinct? How do you learn to sort of back yourself and say, well, I like this and therefore an audience will as well? I don't actually, a lot of the times I think I really like this. I think it's really small. <laughs> like I, I personally, my personal taste is for small, quirky, weird films. Mm. But that's not necessarily, I mean, the cost of distributing a film is not small. So I'll be like, I personally like this, but it's not for distribution by us. Sometimes I'll see a film and I'm like, it's not really my taste, but there's certainly an audience for this and it will work very well in this demographic. And then, you know, that's if, if I hate it, then I don't say that. But if I'm like, I can see the merits of it, then that's different. But then if I really love something, I won't let it go unless somebody else pays more money than us. <laughs> Is that the hardest part of the job, would you say, when someone else pips you at the post? That or when something that you love doesn't work. That's really, really horrible. Coming in on a Monday morning to box office news of, you know, something hasn't worked or or seeing seeing someone else do really well with the film, just like, oh, that could have been us. But um, no, the, the hardest thing is when something doesn't work because then it's all about why didn't this work and is it this? And, and, I, and a lot of the time I'll defend the film and say, no, it's not that. It's maybe, you know, we have a heat wave or a snow we always release our films in a heat wave. Even in December, there seems to be a heat wave. I'm just like, oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you recently returned from maternity leave. And I'm wondering if that has uh, changed your relationship to the work itself. And also if you felt um, supported in the workplace in that transition. Yeah, it's definitely changed. Um, I'm much more focused now on what I will and won't. Before I was like, well, I'll cover absolutely everything and I do think that you have to cover a lot of stuff because if someone else the worst thing is if someone else buys something and you haven't been across it like that's a horrible feeling so I do think that we need to watch a lot of stuff and read a lot of stuff but now because it's so important for me to get home for bedtime and then I can still work once he's gone to sleep but I am more focused on do I need to do this do I need to do this um read this watch this if yeah I would say it's focused me more but also if I'm going to leave my kid at home or at nursery and go to work, it has to be because I'm working on the best films and because I enjoy my job and because I enjoy the people I work with. Um, and I feel that much more having come back. I think it's quite good. I mean, my partner works at the BFI and he he's completely supported by them as well. So it's really good. We're lucky that we can balance it. Where it's an issue is festivals because can I was away for 10 days and that's horrible. But I can't be away for 10 days. I mean, I can't have him with me out there. And even if, you know, he was saying, oh, we'll come out for the weekend, but I wouldn't see him and I would be aware that he was there. And lots of people in acquisitions work all the way through the evening. Whereas, you know, people who work in marketing can do stuff until seven and then they can have dinners and they can go to this. And it's not like that for me. So festivals is really the only time that it's difficult. And I just have to deal with that. Like it's three times a year that I'm away for a long period of time. And hopefully he sees that, you know, he's got a strong female role model and, you know, women can work and, and, and do that as well. It being such a full on job, do you, how do you manage your time and, and do you find time for yourself? <laughs> yeah, in the evenings I do. Um, I'm really quite insistent on leaving on time three days a week, which is when I go home to pick him up. And I am just like, it's 2019. I don't need to be at my desk 
beyond this, mm. I will read a script at home after he's gone to bed or, or watch a film or, or just be like, can this wait until tomorrow? Yeah, I do, I do think it's possible to do both. I think there are loads of parents of either sex working in the film industry who do very well for themselves. I look at someone like Evie Yates, who is like the queen of, of uh, development and, and manages this incredible job. And she's got kids. So I just think, okay, well, it can be done. You just have to be very focused on what you need to do. And um, I just can't have hangovers anymore. (laughs) It's a real issue. (laughs) And I'm also wondering, uh, do you have a support network, uh, both, you know, professionally and and perhaps personally, um, of people that you can rely on? Yeah, when when it is tough or that you can ask questions of? Yeah, Eva was actually um, really, really lovely. Just before I went on maternity leave, I saw her at a screening and she said to me, look, if you ever want to chat I'm here when you get back and that's really nice just to feel like there are other people um Camilla it's uh Camilla Bray she is another one who just is very very supportive she was I did inside pictures a few years ago and she was lined up as my mentor for that and she still sort of takes that role of just just chatting it's not about saying well you can do it and all this stuff just like how are you getting on how are you finding this would this you know would this work for you but yeah you just have to sort of put your arm out there and there's sales agents who I know who've had kids and they're just like if you're in can and you feel like you need a cuddle just come up and I've, I've two sales agents have said like come up for a hug if you need one in the middle of the market I'm just like okay I can't buy your film but I'll come up for a cuddle <laughs> and if you could distill your career into one lesson that you've learned what would that be I think that it's important. I think the most important thing is relationships. I think not in terms of finding out about jobs, but I think it's really important to have a network and not a network, oh, I can climb my way up, a network of support. So I do have a lot of people who I would consider my real friends, but also I feel like we're all, we share information and we just look out for each other. We'll go for drinks or lunches or dinner or whatever. And I think that's really key it can feel very lonely because it's such a the UK industry is small but the pockets of it are so different that you could go to an event and not know anybody in there then you could go to another event and know most people in there so it can be quite alienating so I think it's just important to have friends who who are there and and just find people that want to go to the cinema. And speaking of the cinema, is there a Curzon release by a woman director that you're particularly excited for? Um, we are releasing Souvenir Part 2. So that might be an exclusive, I'm not sure. But we, um, yeah, we're, we're doing Part 2 and I, I can't wait to see it. I really can't wait to see how this moves on. I've read her her story of, of how she wants it to go. But Joanna's, she's not like a word for word from script to screen. She's very intuitive. So I don't really know what I'm going to see until I do. I can't wait. I loved Souvenir and... Um, yeah, I, I think she's she's a really good example of a filmmaker that we've just sort of worked with. And, and th- this film has knocked it out of the park. It's done over half a million pounds and um, can't wait to see how much we do in the second one. <laughs> mm, but that also speaks to the value of supporting women filmmakers throughout their career and not expecting them to hit it out the park on their first go. And yeah, the, the pleasure that there is to be had in kind of watching them uh, develop and flourish. But that's why I'm so proud exactly to be like, okay, well, this does pay off this mm. thing. And yeah, it's just, she's, she's so talented. And then there's a couple of other filmmakers that other people have got that I've got my eye on. I'm like, okay, I'll poach you at some point. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, that's all right. I'm sorry for babbling. 
Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. If this is your first time, there are 36 more episodes to check out on iTunes, Spotify and Acast. If you're a regular, thank you for listening and please do consider leaving a review on iTunes. Have a very merry week. Bye.